is Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 91, recorded July 26th, 2012. So we're back into the 90s, so this is our 33rd 90s episode. Yep. And we're covering the original series and Next Generation Annuals number 3, which came out in 1992. Right. So we're back to uh, getting a little taste of Next Gen and Taz. In one episode. Bonus. A combo episode. Exactly. And as everybody knows, annuals are a tad long, so that's why we're only covering two books this week. Right. Which is really, it might be the same number of pages. Who knows? Actually, it might be more pages. It might Might be be the equivalent of like four books. Oh! Oh! Well, it seemed like it. (laughs) But I, I thought that might have been just the stories. Which were okay. Just not stellar. Yeah, they were they were like unnecessarily padded. I thought. Yeah. But uh, we'll I agree. we'll probably talk about that later. I'm sure. Odds are. So before we jump into the issues, I just want to check on you, Ken, and see how you enjoyed the Next Generation uh, 25th anniversary screening that uh, happened here on July 23rd. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I have uh, I, I, the, my only downside to it is um, they were they were really pushing the Blu-rays. So um, when they started showing the first season uh, extended Blu-ray commercial for season one, uh, I would, uh, the second time at the end of the showing, it was like, okay, I'm done. Well, they showed the, the season one trailer like three yeah. times in mine, and it was the same exact trailer. I mean, oh, with the same Was it three times? Clips. It was at least two. Maybe think, it was three. I think it was three times. Cause, oh, man. No wonder just, I was bored with it. And I'm just like, dude, I've, I've already seen this part. <laughs> and then a lot of those same clips they had in the trailer, they did put into like some of the uh, uh, special feature type thing where they had some of the interviews with the cast and uh, Gene Roddenberry's son and things like that. Right. Um, but... They were like the same clips we already saw in the trailer, so yeah. it's just like, okay, I know what he's about to say. <laughs> exactly. Um, they showed season two trailer also, which was kind of good. I, I So they showed that at Comic-Con, I heard? Oh, I don't know. Not uh, having been there, I don't, you know, I couldn't tell you firsthand, but I guess they showed it at Comic-Con. They showed it during this, too, so that's cool. Yeah, what do you think at, about at the... the en- at the end, that was actually pretty At the good. end. Yeah, that was a hook. Yeah. So... Um, what do you think about the two episodes they selected? You know, I always, I don't always have fond memories of season one. I, yeah. I always think of it kind of being them trying to figure out what's going on and right. But uh, watching footing. those two episodes, I was like, these are actually pretty good. I I agree with you, uh, and they pick. I mean, definitely uh, data lore. I love. I, I really enjoyed that episode. You know that when I think about. Um, Star Trek Next Gen episodes that I like, that one comes up in my mind. I didn't remember it was first season, but it makes sense that it was. Um, 
and I really enjoy that one. Uh, I also enjoy the Traveler one, so right. where no one has gone before. I like that one, but there were parts of that particular episode that it was like, mm, eh, mm, that's kind of yeah. Some I'm of the not, not some of the uh, the weird logic leaps, like just because he's talking to his grandma or his mom or whoever she was, he suddenly realizes. Yeah, when he's like suddenly, everybody's seeing what they want to see. We can't trust anything. We have to put all our faith and goodwill towards the traveler. Oh, like, God, I hate Boy, that. that was a jump. I hated that goodwill. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. Picard was very insightful uh, with very little to go on. <laughs> and, and, and didn't he Didn't he call... I think he called the old lady that he saw in his... He called her Mama. Uh, was it Mama or was it Mima or something like that? It was Mama. Mobile. Well, it was kind of like it was. It was like yeah, it was garbled a or French you know. version or something. Exactly, and it's like I was thinking, hey, that's what Sheldon on uh, Big Bang might say, might call. <laughs> or, but that's Mima, isn't it? That's Mima. That that's definitely Mima. Okay, not quite the same, but <laughs> but I, I was really I haven't watched uh, the Traveler episode in a long time, um, so it was kind of cool to watch it and see that. Oh, they did pick up a lot of that Traveler episode when. Wesley has his little swan song in season seven. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I didn't realize that they were connected as much as they were, <clears throat> which I was pretty impressed with. And then watching Data Lore, I was as unimpressed, I guess is the right word, about how they dropped the whole idea that Data has the memories of all those colonists. Yes. I had forgotten yeah. all about that, and the reason why I forgot about it is because they never mention it again. No, they don't. And you think that that would have come up, you know? Well, but in what context? I remember the memories of a grandma lady that was our colonist. And based on that, I'm applying it to this situation. (laughs) What what are they going to say? I don't know. It just seemed like a really weird thing to keep stressing in that episode. Yeah. It's not going to ever have any payoff ever. Right. I mean... uh, they were really beating you on the head that this was, you know, he has all these memories. And Lore even mentions that you have the memories and I don't. And where they're going to do something with these memories, but they don't. No. But <laughs> is it kind of like what they did in that episode where Picard is uh, taken over and, and, you know, he lived a life right. time on that planet, which actually was, was dead, eight, you know, eons ago or whatever. Yeah. But that probe beamed it in there. It's like, just for somebody to remember them or something, because yeah, they know they're all going to die. So, but, was that the kind of thing that was supposed to be? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. At least he had a flute to remind him of that. They mm-hmm. didn't. They, they didn't ever acknowledge that at all. <laughs> well, yeah, but keep in mind, it's been twenty-five years since he got off the planet. Yeah, I know, get it. So he might have already gotten through whatever was supposed to go on, where the colonists were all being memorialized or whatever, who knows. Right. Well, and they also seem like the revelation that Noonien Soon was there was was news to everybody. Yeah. In that episode. And if yeah. and if he had the memory of mm, So so did Soon purposely erase Data's memory of that bit of information? I don't know. I don't know. But Data Data talks about it and everybody's like, What? Did you just say soon? Exactly. And I'm yeah. like Really, you're just now talking about it for the first time in 25 years, right? Uh, that that part seemed a little weird. Uh, that I didn't remember being that that awkward, right? But uh, overall, I enjoyed it. The it, on the big screen, it looked fantastic. It did look very good. 
They did show a trailer at the beginning before our movie actually started, and it looked horrible. And it was in, you know, it was it was it was a DVD commercial, but it wasn't the same one. You know, I think it was a a TV one that they're just projecting on there. And it looked horrible. It was grainy, and I'm like, oh my god, is it going to be this bad throughout the whole show? And then they kicked into the actual one that uh, that we then got to see three more times, uh, <laughs> and it looked it looked really nice. Yeah. And uh, the special features were really cool. I, I had never known that uh, Patrick Stewart had wore a hairpiece the first time. I, I think I had heard that at one point or another, but not the details where you know they wanted to just come in and take a look at him without the hairpiece. For those of you that that haven't seen, didn't didn't make the track out for this uh, to your local movie theater for this. Uh, Apparently, they had a very special hairpiece for Picard to wear, or Patrick Stewart, to wear during his reading, when he was reading for the part. Right. And then after it, as he's giving this, you know, this tribble back to the uh, lady who brought it, uh, a hairdresser or whatever, uh, they came in just to, you know, thank him. Some of the some of the people that producers that, that watch it come back in and say, "Hey, you know, how's it? Thanks for reading for us. We really appreciate it. You did great." Blah blah blah, and then they leave, and then the uh, the makeup person, hairdresser person, or something, somebody tells them, "You know, they, they don't always do that. They did that because they wanted to see you look like what you look like without the hairpiece on." <laughs> so I guess he looked good enough that they decided to go without the hairpiece. Yes, he looked fantastic, which I think was spot on. It's like, geez. Right. And then I thought it was interesting that uh, Jonathan Frakes says that uh, uh, Billy Campbell was going to be Riker at first. I I had no idea about that. I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't either. That was pretty cool. Yeah. And, of course, that was Captain Akuna. Yep. A.K.A. the Rocketeer. Exactly. And what is he doing now? Anyway. I thought he was on a TV show for a while. Oh, was he? Yeah, yeah, like one of those. I'm sure he probably was. Law and Order, CSI, crossover spinoff, something. Oh. It, it was oh. he was on some sort of TV show. Yeah. Anyways, enjoyed it. I hope everybody uh, that listens enjoyed it. Um, if if you hopefully you got to see it. If not, run out to your local <sighs> Best Buy and buy the uh, Blu-ray. The overpriced Blu-ray. Yeah. How much are they? I haven't even looked. Um, I I have heard. I I just heard recently in a uh, in Gadget HD podcast they were saying it was like eighty or ninety bucks, and I'm pretty sure I saw it at Amazon for less than that. But it was still up there like at least seventy. Well, I mean that's that's what I mean. Just Paramount and now CBS, they just they overprice the Star Trek stuff. I think they do. I mean, well, they, they 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 know there is a uh, a lot of people really like it, but probably not as many as like I don't know uh, Titanic or something. So right. they're going to get that money. <laughs> they're going to get as much money as they can out of that uh, you know that smaller population of fan, I guess. Right. So I, I did just look it up on uh, Amazon.com. Uh, the 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 um, list price or suggested manufactured retail price yeah. is 129.99. Oh god. And if you buy it right now at amazon.com 59.99. Oh, 59. Well, that's better. Yeah, it's a lot better. 
but that's cheap compared to what the uh, I mean that's that's cheaper DVDs. than what the original DVDs yeah. were. They were oh when the when the first TV series came out those uh, those gold red and blue uh, plastic cases right that was that was like a hundred bucks and more right that was ridiculous ridiculous so at least this is Blu-ray redid the special effects yeah re- they had to, they had to do a lot of work on it they, I mean, they it, did have to do a lot of work um, so. but and we'll eventually we'll get to these comic books really but <laughs> I just want to say one more thing about seasons one and two and this is and this is the way I felt about seasons one and two and you just mentioned it before we started the podcast too so I think we're all on the same page but on Blaster I read a little uh, story brief story that was talking about how Will Wheaton was commenting recently on the uh, Blu-ray release and how he had seen this, whether he went to one of these events and saw it or, you know, he he had a pre-screening or whatever. But he was saying watching it, there was some pain in watching some of the first season episodes for him because there were, in the first season, he said they were getting their bearings, they were figuring out what, what they were, you know, what the show was going to be about, you know, what the balance of, you know, characters were going to be and whatever. So they were figuring out a lot of things. And he's just so glad that they got past the first and probably a lot of the second season until they finally got their bearings and really started cooking with gas in the third and fourth and probably even the fifth seasons. Yep. So when I was reading all that, I agreed with pretty much everything he was saying. But I, I guess at one point in time, he was really a little uncomfortable about some of the season one episodes. So, Right. And, and, and I've been thinking that I'm not going to get season one, Blu-ray. And in fact, I have not bought it. And I might wait a little time before maybe the price comes down a little bit. Maybe. maybe. I don't know. There's a good chance it might go up back to 129.99. Oh God, I doubt it. <laughs> you never know. But uh, well, I mean, out of all the DVD Blu-ray releases, I mean, knowing how much work they had to put into it yep. to remaster all those, more so than just you know running the film through the cam through a converter, uh, like most most TV shows to Blu-ray are. Uh, I understand that they do have to recover quite a bit of cost there, but I don't know. You still. Still can't charge $130 for 20 episodes. No. But then again, 59 isn't bad when you consider how much material there is. It's not like you're buying, uh, you know, Captain America DVD. Exactly. You know, one movie, two, two and a half hours. This is a lot more material than that, or right. a lot more. Yeah, I could justify 60 bucks. Yeah. I'll probably end up getting it. <laughs> All right. Well, you want to jump into comic books? Because this is a comic book review. Let's do it. Let's do it. And uh, do we want to go in order of the uh, of the shows where they yeah. came out? Yeah, so uh, let's do it in the original order. So I guess we'll do original series first and then do Next Generation. Perfect. All right, so I have the pleasure of doing annual number three of Star Trek, the original series. This one is entitled Homeworld, and it came out sometime in 1992. Uh, the writer is Howard Weinstein. Penciler is Norm Dwyer. Inker is Arnie Starr. Letter is Bob Panaha. Colorist is Tom McCraw. Uh, Robert Greenberger and Kim Yell are the co-editors. And Laura and Kelly Freeze did the cover art. So it's kind of nice that they actually got credit. 
uh, in the on the cover page or the the credit page. Usually, don't they, say that very often. Yeah, you, they usually skip the cover artist for some reason. Yeah. All right, so the cover is a picture of Sarek and a male and female alien standing over McCoy and Kirk while they work on a sick or dying female alien of the same species. Uh, these aliens are all robed and for the most part look human, except they have slightly upturned noses and large buck teeth. So the story starts off with Sarek arriving at a planet called New Katera. He is greeted by a longtime friend and leader of the planet named Lartok. Lartok is very pleased to see him that he was able to arrive at the signing of New Katara's uh, official annexation within the Federation. She places great praises onto him for his efforts in the past, getting them to this day. Sarek modestly refuses her compliments. Lartok explains to the Vulcan that with this annexation of the planet into the Federation, she will be stepping down as leader. Sarek is then taken a little aback when she informs him that the reason she is stepping down is due to her soon death. She explains that her species can choose the time of their deaths and that she has chosen this time since her planet will finally be ready to enter the galactic political ring. The two of them arrive at the dwelling of her chosen successor, a young woman named Shalkia. Shalkia is honored to meet the Vulcan, uh, and again she showers him with praise. Uh, and once again, Sarek Down plays his role in New Katara's history. Lartok explains that it will soon be time for the blending, and with this uh, comment, it sets Shield Kira off. Uh, she is quite enraged. She says that she will not be the new leader if it requires implanting the memories of Lartok and all of the leaders that came before her. In the briefing room of the Enterprise, which we learn is in orbit and that they had just delivered Sarek, Kirk, McCoy, and Spock are discussing the events that we just witnessed. Spock explains to the group the backstory of the planet how the Katarans were displaced from their home world due to a war between two other planets. Uh, the people scattered across the galaxy until Lartok found the planet, and with the help of a young Sarek, was able to colonize it as New Katara. They were offered membership into the Federation at that time, but Lartok refused until they could prove that they could make it on their own. The history lesson is cut short when Sarek calls from the planet and states that Lartok is requesting a meeting. The trio beam down and talk to Lartok. She explains her goal all these years was to bring back all the Katarans from across the galaxy and give them a home. Uninvited, Shield Kia arrives and states that many of the Katarans that arrived no longer hold the same ideals that Lartok is trying to retain from their past. That is why she is refusing the blending, even though she knows that Lartok is dying and that there is not enough time to find another successor. She does not want to bind New Kantara to the past. The stress of this argument is too much, and Lartok uh, loses consciousness. Shail Kia runs off. McCoy checks Lartok over, and she starts to come around. 
Scotty then contacts Kirk from the Enterprise and informs the captain that a ship has arrived, and they claim to be Sancti. With the sound of this word, Lartok bolts upright in shock, exclaiming that this is impossible. Sometime later, the Sancti leader named Ruljha arrives at the planet. Through the use of a captain's log, we learn that the Sancti were ancient spiritual leaders of Katara, but it was thought that they were all long dead. Ruljha explains that they escaped, and they have been watching the progress of New Katara for quite some time. He also explains that they have revealed themselves now to take their place as the rightful rulers of New Katara. Sarek has been brought into service to mediate between Lartok and Ruljha. He says that the Federation cannot pick sides on this matter, but they can offer counsel. When no agreement can be made, Ruljha suggests that they contact the Peacekeepers. Uh, they then flash to a museum of sorts where Lartok is taking the group on a little field trip. And she explains to us and to Kirk and company who the Peacekeepers are. It seems that they were a wise race of kangaroo-type animals on their home planet. They lived in wild herds on the mountains, uh, but they would arrive to the cities to quill conflicts and impart wisdom. At one time, there was a huge planet-wide drought, and all of the livestock died. The people became so desperate for food that they started to slaughter and eat the peacekeepers. That is when a large ship came from the heavens and beamed the remaining peacekeepers up and whisked them away. Ruljha suggests that the religious relics from their home planet might hold clues about the whereabouts of the peacekeepers. Lortok refuses to allow him access to the relics, but she again has a fainting spell. As McCoy and Sarek attend to her, Ruljha orders a beam-up, and everyone is teleported away except Spock and Kirk. Aboard the Sancti ship, McCoy, Sarek, and Lartok are placed in a cell. Ruljha is contacted by the Enterprise. Kirk threatens to take the hostages back by force if he needs to. Ruljha orders a low-powered attack, and this beam of some sort is able to penetrate the shields with ease and it shocks everybody aboard he then informs kirk that this was just a small taste and that they will destroy the enterprise next time in their cell mccoy and sarek talk about how religion is usually based on guilt and in this case the katarans are feeling guilty about the death of all the peacekeepers ruljha and his men beam down to the planet to steal the relics Scotty tries to beam down a security force to stop them, but he's not able to get through some barrier that the Sancti are creating. Scotty does eventually work it out and is able to beam down the team, but it's too late. All the relics have been stolen. The Sancti ship starts to leave orbit. Kirk orders a beam up of the team as well as Shilka. Uh, Shilka is none too happy about this. Kirk orders that uh, the Enterprise follow the Sancti at top speed. Shilka and Kirk have a heart-to-heart -heart in the steering wheel room. She explains that she does not want to share her life with all the minds of the past leaders, and that no one can understand her feelings. 
Kirk says that she should have this talk with Lore Talk and that uh, he, she should have it before she dies. In the holding cell with McCoy and Sarek, McCoy's scans of Lortok are grave indeed. She is fading fast. Sarek takes this time to explain that Spock's birth is due to Lortok's involvement. He was debating marriage with Amanda when he was working on the new Katara mission. Lortok told him that marriage with Amanda was the only logical thing to do. At that moment, Lartok wakes up, and she requests that she mind-meld with Sarek to pass over her memories and all the memories of the other ones uh, so that he can then pass them on to Shilka. He agrees to do this, and she dies as soon as the procedure is complete. The Sancti and the Enterprise arrive at a planet. Kirk and his team of people beam down where they scan the Sancti beamed to. Once everyone is together, a herd of creatures surrounds them. Everyone assumes that these are just normal animals, uh, including Raul Ja, who is quite shocked that uh, these normal animals uh, could never be the revered peacekeepers. Uh, back on the Enterprise, a new, larger vessel appears out of nowhere, causing much turbulence. Back on the planet, Shilka pulls a knife and tries to kill Rulja. Kirk stops her. Uh, then the herd begin to speak in a unified voice. They say that the Katarans have not changed. Uh, just then, another type of creature beams down. Uh, these look more like the kangaroo type that we saw earlier instead of the deer type that we've been uh, seeing so far. These new creatures introduce themselves as the Sky Lords and that they were the ones that rescued the Peacekeepers all those years ago. Between the Peacekeepers and the Sky Lords, we are informed that the Peacekeepers are tasked with going to young planets and helping the inhabitants while the Sky Lords are in charge of transporting them from planet to planet. The Peacekeepers then claim that they have had enough and that they quit. Uh, they request that the Sky Lords return them home, and they say that this is a home that no Katarin or anybody else can ever find. Uh, the Sky Lords agree, and once all the beasts are gone, Shilka apologizes to Rulja and request that Sarek help them unite their people once again. And then the last page shows the Enterprise flying through space. And through some dialogue between McCoy, Kirk, and Spock, we learn that Sarek released Lartok's mind, uh, so he never implanted it into anybody else. Uh, McCoy and Spock then start arguing about what the moral of the story was. Kirk says that he will have to call Sarek back up if they need a mediator. McCoy says that he will shut up because he cannot deal with two Vulcans at the same time. <laughs> wah, wah, the end. <laughs> Whew, that was a Lily, long you one. were at the end. Yes, it was a long one. What'd you think? I I completely agree with you. This was artificially lengthened. I, I, I'm sorry, but some of the most potentially boring Star Trek stories have to do with diplomatic stuff. Well, if the, um, if the and, and and this is all just talking about a lot of diplomacy stuff, a lot of transitions of power, you know, blow up a ship or something. It's like, ugh, already. 
Right. And, it's, it's, and, it's kind of it's kind of dull, and it's stretched out, so that makes it you know both. And it's all oh here's somebody. Let me give you the backstory of this person or yeah. this race of people, and then exactly. oh here's somebody. Let me give you the race the backstory of this person. And right. It got to the point where I just didn't care anymore. <laughs> All right, so the the Sancti show up, and they're yeah. the religious leaders of the past. Okay, yep. that's kind of interesting. Uh, and then they're like, "Oh well, let's call the peacekeepers." <laughs> oh, they're uh, you know sentient deer from our past. And then there's like, "Oh, they were protected by the Sky Lords. They're sentient <laughs> from our past." And I'm like, "Oh my God, this doesn't even make sense." And then I mentioned I didn't even mention the third one when the Sky Lord or the peacekeepers say they're going to quit. Uh, the Sky Lords say, "Oh, but you're going to go against the will of somebody else." Mm-hmm. Uh, what is it? it? Starts with yeah, an well, M. Yeah, so it's just it's, it's like, like their it, bosses, right? So, but but why even or their leadership the cast or whatever? The man, and by and by the way, they are very similar to each other. Right. One's one's biped and the other one's quadped quadruped well yeah and 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 the sky lords look like they're very similar to the uh what lindak uh well whatever the heck they're no um, words are the lindak that's another that's the other name for them okay anyway so so the guys are the who are the peace peace bringers whatever uh are on for all, all fours and they got and they got the same horns as the uh, sky folks, but the sky the sky lords or whatever the hell they're 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 like hanging out on uh, on two feet, mm-hmm. right? So they're, so they're upright. And you're right, they do have hands, don't they? That's right, they do right. have hands. Yeah, I yeah. guess they have to they have to well, operate the ship or something. I guess right. And they're tall. I mean, I didn't mention it, but well, the one yeah, that but... talks to Kirk, he's 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 at least twelve feet tall. He's he's twice as tall as Kirk is. Easily. Right. But if these priests, these peace bringers would stand up on their rear legs, they might they'd be. probably be about the same height. Yeah, I agree. But that, but so I, I thought they were the same race. They just called them different. You know, okay. So these are the guys that fly the ships. Okay, fine. These are the guys that are the diplomats. Okay, fine. <laughs> uh, but you're completely right. The um, the sky guys have hands. Right, and their feet are more like kangaroo legs, where right. the other ones right. have more like Hooves. deer. Cow kind of feet, right? So are the horns uh, ornamental? Because the horns look almost identical on both. Yeah, the horns look to be the same. And it looks like they've got some weird looking, uh, like uh, a, a black felt letter Y turned upside down, pasted on their the front of their snouts, on their noses. Yeah, is that supposed to be like a mustache or something? Oh. <laughs> I don't know. They all have it. <laughs> it's like an X, I thought, but then like the top part of the X is like wispy looking and then the the bottom part is yeah. is very thick uh good point i guess it does look a little bit like uh like a like an x but i i thought of it as a y yeah no i, I totally see it. It, it it's, it's anyway it looks you know, silly it looks very silly and you know uh you know looking at this thing it was like why do they have to make you know the the, the aliens uh cows and kangaroos or whatever the hell they are it's like it's just so unrealistic why did they even need but, them though why? Why they need two of them? It, it just didn't well, make it, sense. It seemed like they were unnecessarily. You know, they didn't need the Sky Lords. We could have had the Peacekeepers be the same, right? Yeah, you could have. You could have. Like I said, that that was just an extra two or three pages they tacked on to. 
uh, fill in the, the 56 pages of the It's an book. annual. Let's give them some more value for their money. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Anyway, so, yeah, so not only do we have the Sky Lords and the Peacekeepers, but when the, when the Peacekeepers say they're going to quit, uh, the Sky Lords are like, oh, but you can't go without the Mandor's permission. <laughs> Who the hell's the Mandor's? We don't know. Uh, and then the uh, Peacekeepers say, we'll just take that up with Mandor's. We'll, we'll take that up with the Mandors. Exactly. And you're just like, who the heck is a Mandor? Am I going to get a three-page explanation of them sometime? I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, uh, it was it was just... I, I wasn't overly blown away with this one. All, all good points, but I just want to bring up a few of the good things. Mm-hmm. I love how they write... I, like, I love the lettering for... You know... When you they, always say that. I, I know. I know I've said that before. i, I got to say it again, though. Because yes. they do it a couple times, and it's, it's perfect. It's just perfect. Page 9 has it. A few other places. Yeah. Now, the aliens themselves, I, I mentioned they, they look different on the cover than they do in the book. Um, yeah, well, in the book, beautiful. they kind of look aquatic almost, like they might have gills on the side of their face. But on the cover, they just look like buck-toothed. People. People. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and also, what, Sheel, the, the, the younger yeah. one coming in on it? Right. I mean, in the book, she, she looks young, and she looks like she's got a decent figure on her. On the cover, it's like, she, they look the same. I mean, Sheel looks the same as... Um, right. Uh, Long talk. Right. Right. So, yeah, right. That yeah, they, she looks really old on the cover, but in the, in the book she looks nice and nice and young, like she could. Uh, and they they do say these are long lived uh, people. People, so yeah. she could you know rule them for the next hundred years or whatever. Right. If she wanted to, but she doesn't she, want to. Well, she wants to. She just doesn't but want to do the, independently. the binding thing. Exactly. Yeah. Angry young woman. Angry, angry, angry young woman. So, uh, what she's else? Like, we, what, she's got what a big, th- big pissed off look on her face most of the most of the book. You mean she um, looks I, angry? I, she looks angry. Yeah. Uh, Kirk looks jowly, particularly on page thirty-eight. Things. But in a couple of places, Kirk's looking pretty jowly in, in the art history. What was the page you said? Thirty-eight. Thirty-eight. In particular, but there's multiple places. Where he's looking kind of jowly, which I like because you know it's a little bit more realistic to the time period. Yeah. So that so artwork in general, you know, adequate. I thought you know, it was good. Yeah. Nothing blew me away. You know, nothing was absolutely horrible. Ships so. looked good, I thought. Or at least the Enterprise. Yeah. Yeah. yeah they look fine. On a on a different topic, if if you're done with that. Oh, other than the artistry or the book. Artistry, yeah. Okay. When we're told what the binding is, uh, after she storms off, uh, Mm -hmm. McCoy, Kirk, and and Spock talk about it. And, you know, McCoy is almost defending it, I I thought. And I thought that that was kind of odd, because if anybody knew what having somebody else's (laughs) mind in your brain is like, it would be him. And I don't think he thought that that was a pleasant experience. When it was happening to him. So I thought it was sure. odd that they didn't mention it there. And then 
And I was like, well, this, you know, Howard Weinstein's just not mentioning it, um, you know, it'll un, un, unnecessarily cloud the story. Right. And then they use it as a plot point later that, oh, we can put her mind into Sarek's mind similar to how Spock's mind was into my mind. You know, this right. is McCoy saying that. Right. And I'm like, okay, now you're going to mention it and, and you still seem okay with it. Where <laughs> you've always seemed like that was not something you were too happy with at the time. Yeah. Yep. True. And then I really didn't like how just on the last page, oh, by the way, uh, I released her mind. What is that? Yeah. I just released it. <laughs> is it no, like. No, no, nobody wanted it and I didn't want it. So it's like, you know, okay. You know, drop it off a of goodwill. So Fine. it's like purging a file, just put it in your uh, That's trash about bin. It. That's about it. There's no ceremony or anything. I released it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. She was my best friend in the whole world. I exactly. Her. You could have yeah. at it, least it, yeah. kept her for yourself if she was really that good a friend. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, put her in a dog or something. That's something pleasant. Or into the... The Katra stone or whatever it is there on Vulcan that oh, they put the Katra. on. Oh, Oh God, you're bringing well, that up. Well, that's that's what that's what Spock was, or that's what McCoy was supposed to do with him, right? Oh, really? Yeah, that's what Sarek, because Sarek goes to Kirk thinking that Kirk had his Katra, and yeah. Sarek was going to take the Katra to Vulcan and to put it in that stone thing. Oh, did he say that? Yeah. I don't remember that. Yeah, that was the whole reason why Spock did that. And then it was just a, a coincidence that his body got re reanimated. <laughs> reanimated. Well, it didn't really so, get so, so that clone. So that body being reanimated, well, re rebuilt from scratch, whatever. Right. Um, so it had no soul in it. It had no mind in it. Even though it was going, you know, it didn't have that, it, it had not existed that long. Right. So yeah, what, when, when whatever they, personality uh, was there, whatever thing that was developing there got wiped out when, uh, clean when, when yeah. old Spock got put in there. So, yeah, that's why the Leonard Nimoy Spock doesn't remember all the time that his younger self spent with Savick. Ah, yes, yes. Yeah, uh, in the carnal sense. Right. Exactly. So, in the pond far. Yes, exactly. Oh, well, how interesting. Yeah. So, when she starts showing and stuff, um, hmm. <laughs> and she's got to explain that to him? Oh, come on. You mean to tell me? I'm not buying it. It's not my baby. What's that? What's that? What, what's that? Michael Jackson song. Michael Jackson song. Yeah, the 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 kid's not my son. You know. Oh yeah, I've heard Jackson that in a long time. Anyway, moving on. All right, so um, I got two coloring issues that uh, I wanted to bring up. Okay. On page sixteen. The, sixteen. The very. Or I'm sorry, not sixteen. Um. Well, I wrote 16. Oh, yeah, I'm looking at the wrong book. Oh. Uh, on page 16, the very last panel, I think it's supposed to be McCoy. Do you see it? Um, I'm getting to that page. It's a, it's an older gentleman, and he says, the peace giver, givers, what are they? I'm 90% positive it's supposed to be McCoy, only by facial structure, but his hair is pure white, which... Is the color of Savick's hair, not McCoy's. <laughs> Sarek's hair? Sarek, yeah. <laughs> did I say Savick? <laughs> yes, you did. All right, yeah. So Funny I, wasn't, about that. I wasn't 100% positive on who was saying that. Exactly. Yep, I see that. Yep. 
you know, I couldn't see the pointed ears, and his hair color was white, but his face looks like McCoy's. And then the other uh, coloring thing I have was on page 49. Um, Ooh, 49, okay. When all the, the peacekeepers are surrounding them in the herd. Right. They look like they're going to crush them. Right, but McCoy has a, a... He says something at the top of the page, and then at the bottom of the page, Spock and McCoy have a conversation, or at least say a couple things. And those word balloons are gray for some reason. Right. Where all the other word balloons are white. So, did <clears throat> What's you, the point? Was there supposed to be some sort of significance to the gray? I don't. Or do you think it was a coloring issue? I think that's just a, a coloring thing. That's what I thought too. But because yeah. it's the same, it's the same color as the uh, the peace givers, peacekeepers, whatever they're called. Right. Yeah. So I was just thinking it was a, a mistake, but I just wanted to ask you, see what you thought. Yeah. Kind of, a, kind of a really light purple. Right. Kind of thing. A lavender, whatever. What else you got? I just want to make a last point. How the heck did the Sancti get so dang advanced in their technology? Well, everybody thought every, if you, if everybody in the galaxy thinks you're dead, you can advance your technology quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they were using advanced technology to block uh, the Enterprise's every move, right? And so they had some good. Tech- I mean, their engines were better. Uh, Weapons were better. Yeah, what, what, what was that lightning thing that was going through the ship anyway? Anyway, it, it just like, it was just a bit forced. So, okay, we got to keep this going, and we got to let the Sancti go ahead and, you know, find the peacekeepers, givers, whatever. And so we'll make them really technologically advanced, and so the Enterprise can't do anything. Yeah. And it's yeah. like, jeez. <laughs> If, if I mean, if if that happened that often, it's like uh, really hard to defend yourself. I mean, between Nero and and these guys, it's like how do you defend yourself in this dangerous galaxy? Well, Nero is from a different time, so he well, wouldn't be here. I'm just saying, no, whatever their reason, if they got advanced tech, you have a tough time. Okay, Borg, let's bring the Borg into it. No, anyway, I agree. With with bravery, and and it didn't really have a payoff. They never had to beat them. Right, it was, oh, you know, her thing at the end where she just turns to him and says, sorry, I tried to stab you in the back. Uh, <laughs> Sarek, will you help mediate our, our truce? Right. I was like, seriously? <laughs> That's how you're going to end it? Yeah. And then, you know, usually when you have, like you said, usually when you have a, a superior force, they have to somehow trick them or somehow be more cunning than they are. Right. But here it was like it it was an unneeded plot point. It was it was very forced, I thought. Right. And then the 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 what, what Skylords had the same thing. They show up and Enterprise starts shaking for no reason and then yeah. no explanation. Yeah. But again, they're advanced tech and you know, they could probably blow them away. Right. But why? Mm. Because they're kangaroos. Twelve-foot kangaroos? Uh, with uh, with opposable thumbs? Yes. Good question. <laughs> I mean, they must have came from the same, you know, ancestry. Yeah. At least they look like it. Anyway. Wherever the mandorms are. 
maybe they had a genetic manipulation for their specific uh, specialized parts of their society. Who knows? Okay, that's all I have to say about this one. <laughs> I'm done. I think we're beating a dead horse here. I'm done, man. Okay, shall we go on to the next, our next annual? Yes. It is a next gen, and it is annual number three for 1992 published date, and the title is The Broken Moon. Writer is Jan Michael Friedman. Uh, artist for breakdowns is Brandon Peterson, and then the artist for finishes is Pablo Margus, which is kind of interesting. I have you know, maybe that happens on and off in, in comic book dumb, but that's the first time I've seen, I've noticed it. Um, colorist, Juliana Farider. Uh, letterer is Bob Pinaha. Editor is Kim Yale. And the consulting editor is Robert Greenberger. The cover shows a close-up of Jordy on the left facing an alien woman on the right. The alien woman appears to be scowling. She has beads in her hair and multicolored scales on parts of her face and neck. But other than that, she looks kind of human. They are holding up two halves of a circular pendant that are similar to mitzpah pendants. They appear to have some kind of relationship from the past, but neither are smiling. Picard's log tells us the Enterprise is rendezvousing with an Angalatu vessel to take aboard Colonus, the son of a powerful noblewoman named Castrin. Though the Angalatu are a savage people, their dealings with the Federation have always been straightforward and honest in the past, and he expects the same in this interaction. Picard wonders why a patriarchal society like the Angalatu would send a young male on this diplomatic mission. When Colonus materializes on the transporter pad, he says he has no time for pleasantries and asks to speak to Commander LaForge immediately and in private. Picard agrees and they go off to Geordi's quarters. In response to O'Brien's concerns over giving the run of the ship over to an Angalatu, Picard recounts to he and Troy the story of how Geordi saved Castron in a singular act of bravery. The act led Castrin to form an ancient bond with Geordi called the Children of the Broken Moon. Making such a bond with a male, and worse, an alien, caused dissension in the ranks that Castrin had to deal with, with the back of her hand. That bond led to the opening of relations between the Federation and the Angalatu. When relations were strained uh, through... Uh, as time went on, the bond again helped to get past those issues. Picard conjectures that relations may again be strained. Safely in Geordi's quarters, Colonus tells Geordi of the treachery and deceit that has infested the Angolantu Imperatrix's court by six or seven members that are stoking the flames of civil war. Colonus says his mother, Castrin, is one of the seven. Colonna says the Imperatrix herself wants Geordi to talk sense into Castron. Geordi says if he comes on the Enterprise, clearly as a member of the Federation, it would break the Prime Directive, so he proposes to come by another means less overt. Geordi speaks to Picard, who does not like the idea at all. Geordi will put himself into harm's way without any Federation aid. Finally, Picard agrees, but counsels Geordi to be exceedingly careful. Geordi beams over to Clonus's vessel, 
temporarily losing his rank in Starfleet. Immediately, he is accosted by a huge brute that does not appreciate off-worlders on an Angalatu vessel. After taking a tough right cross, Geordi responds with two moves Worf taught him and beats the brute into submission. Meanwhile, on the Enterprise, Worf expresses his concerns for Geordi on the Angolatu vessel, given their warlike ways. Riker tries to give Geordi some credit to be able to take care of himself, but silently expresses concern himself. Later, Geordi and Colonus enter Castron's palace, which looks the same to Geordi as it did last time he was there. They pass nasty-looking guards as they enter the throne room. Geordi and Colonus approach, and after a brief period of discussion, Castron becomes unreasonably angry. She is not herself, despite Geordi's presence. Despite him being her moon brother and Colonus being her son, they are both thrown into prison after being beaten. Later in the dungeon, Geordi and Colonus discuss the perplexing actions of Castron. Geordi harkens back to the time when he helped to mediate issues between Angalatu and the Klingons. The negotiations literally came to blows when Castron herself attacked the lead Klingon. Captain DeSoto was knocked out before he could call for security, so it was up to Geordi to defuse the situation. He put himself in between Castron and the Klingon and talked her down from her berserker rage. Colonus comments that Geordi's abilities to influence Castron do not seem as strong now. Given their failure to talk sense into her, Colonus says his priority is to warn the Imperatrix. Geordi observes that that will be difficult as long as they are in prison. Together they set about freeing themselves using Colonus's detailed knowledge of the dungeons he gained during his childhood. Meanwhile, on the Enterprise, Data discusses his discomfort since Geordi left the ship with Guinan and Dr. Crusher. The ladies suggest that maybe it's because Data misses the presence of his friend. Data acknowledges the possibility, but is not convinced his programming includes such a response. In the dungeon, Geordi and Colonus are both working on twisting the same window bar. It's the one Colonus knows is weakened. They finally break the bar free and squeeze out the window. Outside the dungeon, in the woods, their path is blocked by three guards. They are able to take two down, but the third guard is unusually strong, and it takes both of them to bring him finally down. Geordi discovers an appendage sticking out of the back of the guard's neck. It looks like the same as the alien parasite that attempted to take over the Federation by infesting top Federation brass and bending them to the parasite's will. This was all in preparation for an all-out invasion of the Federation. Geordi figures the same alien race is trying the same plan to conquer the Angolatu. They decide to expose the invasion from within at the council meeting. At that very public setting, they intend to confront Castron with the knowledge. Once the leadership knows what is happening, they will take measures to identify the compromised noblemen and remove the parasites from them. In the Imperatrix's chambers, she is presiding over the council. She is calling Castron's words absolute treason, 
when Jordi and Colonus enter, offering information as to the off-world influences plaguing some of the council members. Castrin attempts to silence her son, but the Imperatrix says they will speak. Colonus states that some of the noblemen have been taken over by alien parasites that control their actions. At that point, Castrin has one of her guards attempt to kill Colonus, but Jordi is able to stop the guard's attack. The guard is able to knock Jordi to the ground, and just as he is about to shoot him, Colonus shoots the guard. As the argument starts up again, they witness one of the parasites coming out of the mouth of the dead guard. With proof of the parasitical invasion, for all to see, a full-scale firefight ensues. In it, the Imperatrix proves quite handy with an energy weapon. Jordi is forced to shoot Castron to save Colonus. They identify the noble woman that is hosting the queen parasite, the leader. With massed fire, they take the queen out, which triggers the departure of the parasites from all the other hosts, including the severely wounded Castron. The invasion from within thwarted, Jordi and Colonus receive the thanks of the Imperatrix. Later on the Enterprise, Picard receives word from the Imperatrix herself that Mr. LaForge identified and took part in dealing with a parasitical invasion of Gla. Jordi and the Federation have their thanks. Jordi requests return to the Enterprise. Picard grants the request eagerly. On Gla, Jordi receives thanks from his moon sister, Castrin and Colonus. They say their goodbyes as Jordi is beamed up to the Enterprise. In the transporter room, Jordi is welcomed back. Though asked by McCard to describe the fight in the Imperial Chambers, the tired and aching Jordi sums it up by saying, He saved their necks. Wah, wah, wah. The end. You gotta love a good joke at the end. Oh, a good joke, too. He <laughs> saved their necks. Jordy, you are a crack-up. <laughs> now, uh, why did that one woman turn into, like, a blob thing before they shot her? I don't know. I don't remember that happening. In the, was, it, was it the end of the first, first season that did that? Uh, it was the second to last episode. The second conspiracy. Okay. Conspiracy. Yeah, I don't remember that happening then. Uh, don't know. Well, there was that one good shot where they did kill that one person that was sitting in the command chair. And it ended up showing like a hollowed chest and that creature was still there and they had to keep firing on it. <laughs> Until it finally died. Yeah, but I don't yeah. remember them turning into uh, this like Resident Evil looking blob thing. Right. Maybe just a little extra thrill, you know, a little extra... Entertainment value. It's an annual, after all. Yeah, but I did. I did enjoy that they brought back the parasite. Me too, because I thought, you know, I, I kind of like that parasite, and I think we talked about these guys before, um, where I had said that they were perhaps an early prototype of the arch nemesis that would come back every once in a while um, to threaten the next gen crew, like the Borg turned out to be. Right, but. Um, but the fact that we never saw them again, I thought it was kind of odd. Um, but maybe they figured they got better, you know, better villains to to spring on us. And definitely the Borg were a better villain. Right. 
They do come back, in addition to this book, they come back uh, in the Deep Space Nine uh, novels. Ah. The ones that mm. would be like season eight. Um, right. They do come back, and, and they're kind of like an ongoing... Where, where Kira is running the station? Yep, where Kira is running... Or actually, yeah, Kira is running the station, and, and uh, uh, Ro is there. Ah. Oh, all right, okay. So, yeah. <clears throat> You should read those. They're pretty good. Yeah. Yes. Agreed. <laughs> In all your free time. When In all my free time. Reading comic books. <laughs> I thought it was interesting uh, how the uh, Anglatu vessels uh, were all white and they have the outboard nacelles similar to Starfleet tech. So, I mean, they were their own ships. Right. But they kind of reminded me a bit of uh, at least Federation markings. So, um, you know, it seemed like maybe they were using a little bit of Federation tech in their own ships. I don't know. Right. When I first saw it, like, on that first page, I thought it was, like, the engineering section of a, of a ship. Yeah, right. Just without the saucer section. And then I realized, oh, it's a different type of ship. Right. Yeah, it looked like a Federation ship. Right. right. It, it, looked like, it looked like it was, like, just without the saucer section. You know, right. yeah, the, the nacelles <clears throat> are on the bottom, but... But there's no saucer section. But it looks like just the engineering section and the and the and the nacelles. Right. Yep. Good point. Another thing it reminded me of was an outer space um, QE2 or something like a, like a yeah a cruise ship with nacelles plastered on the side or something a little bit mm. big tall ship tall ship okay mm. I disagree but okay <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about <laughs> what else in that first in the first thing where. You know, it, it's com- the first page yeah. of the story where the Enterprise is there and this thing is coming towards it. Yeah. It looks like a big, tall cruise ship with nacelles stuck on the side. Oh, 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 a cruise ship. Yeah. Oh, oh, QE2, the Queen Elizabeth 2. Gotcha. Sorry. Okay. No, I, okay. I get what you're saying now. Yeah, like a, like a cruise ship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I see it. I, I see it going. I thought that was an interesting choice of how to depict the ship. Right. Yeah, I, I'm not, I wasn't throw, blown away with it. To be honest. Yeah. I, I just wonder what they were trying to get at. I mean, were they saying that they were using Federation tech? I don't know. I mean, they are part of the Federation, right? Right. So, maybe. Maybe. I mean, why wouldn't they? I mean, yeah, that's a good point. So, I mean, Earth vessels that aren't part of Federation, do they look the same as the Federation ships? I mean, I guess we don't really know because we don't ever see them. <laughs> not not much. I think every once in a while you'll see like a like a trading ship or, or something like that. But um, and the way they make it sound, I mean, it sounds like the Federation ships. I mean, they make it sound like it all comes from Earth or something. Or a lot of the designers are from Earth anyway. Right. So I don't know. Earth shipbuilders to the to the stars at Jupiter Station at Jupiter Station. Or, or Iowa. Iowa. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, on the planet. It's like, come on. Well, you don't have to worry about wearing oxygen masks if you're just welding it there on Earth. Well, I'll agree with that, but it's like, I don't know. I mean, you... especially, especially with supposedly how much bigger <laughs> the 2009 movie Enterprise is supposed to be compared to the old one. That's why, like, they, that's why they have a... That's massive. why they have a... Um, Grand Canyon-sized quarry there in Iowa. Oh, it, it, that's what they built the ship from. Yeah, they dug out all the all yeah. the uh, duranium 
metal stuff. Exactly. I mean, okay. <laughs> is, is it really? Is it? Is that why? Is that why? I never knew that. Yeah, is that's that why that... they explained that there was a Grand Canyon in the middle of Iowa? Yeah, yeah. I think we've ah. talked about it here on the show. Before. Did we? Yeah. Oh. It's explained in the the novel oh. by um, Alan Dean Foster. The novel oh, that adapted the script. Yeah, it, it's mentioned there. Oh, cool. Well, that would at least explain that. <laughs> so, but still, uh, again, you're not going to build a ship that huge. No, no, you know, it's silly. Planet. I mean, how do you get it up? I mean, well, I guess they must have anti-grav or whatever, but still. Well, then why uh, can't the Enterprise go down on the planet in the future? I think it's just too darn big. But if it did it once, why can't it do it again? Well, it's got no landing gear. And besides, look at how hover. huge look at how huge that saucer section is. It would fall forward. <laughs> Could you imagine the size of the landing gear you'd need? Yeah. Uh, at, at least at least Voyager was more balanced in its design. I still hated it when did. it landed. Oh, you hated it. <laughs> yeah, what the big smaller thing. ship, more balanced design. Mm. That's mm. why they have transporters. They don't need to land. I agree. I agree. So anyways, back to this book. The, on page four and five, when Picard's giving the retelling of how Geordi saved her life. Right. Uh, did you notice that Geordi's wearing a season one uniform, but he's it's gold, which oh. should have been red. And oh. he has lieutenant pips when he sh- when they say in the text that he's a oh, ensign. God. You, you would notice the pips, wouldn't you? He has two pips. <laughs> Incent is the little round circle without the, yeah. the filling. Yep, I agree. Good point. Did make sense. Well, maybe back then, uh, he what? Well, command. He was part of command. Okay, so I I I'll agree with the pips. Right. But yeah, I don't know, do about know? The, the color of the shirt. I was going to exactly. give him the he color of the shirt, but then when the pips were there, I was like, all right, I gotta I gotta bring it up. <laughs> okay, I agree with the pips. Because he could have went gold. He could have went red. He could have went gold again. Right, because that happens all the time. Uh, not usually. <laughs> but then again, he went from being uh, what pilot? Right. He's a pilot to being the engineer. It's like those seem to be two pretty different career paths to me. But whatever. Really? It's the same career path O'Brien took: pilot, chief transporter, chief, chief engineer, chief engineer of Deep Space Nine. Oh, he was a pilot. I didn't know he was a pilot. Yeah, it, in the first season, it was whoever sat in that pilot's chair was either Jordy, O'Brien, or Worf. And then when Yar died, Worf got promoted. And then right. by season two, the other two got promoted. Right. And Wesley came on. Wesley, a field prom- promotion to Ensign. Yeah. And I and I completely forgot about um, that conversation. That private conversation between the traveler and Picard. Exactly, I did as, too. Uh, that's why I thought I was yeah. like, "That's fantastic." I totally yeah. forgot about that. Well, it, it helps explain the transition right. from Picard saying, "Get the kid off the sh- off the bridge," to "Yeah, come on board, and we'll make you an ensign." And it also kind of justifies why he runs off with the traveler at the end of the. Yeah. Movies. Well, yeah, that's yeah, that that that's totally. I mean, because I remember. I remember the the traveler and the relationship between him and and Wesley. That part I remembered, which of course made sense in the seventh season episode. But right. uh, I com- I forgot about the traveler talking to Picard about him. Right. 
And he ends up getting kicked out of Starfleet. Because he's a hothead. Becoming a bad boy. Bad boy, bad boy. I, I, I completely forgot in the first season how the people kept on telling Wesley to shut up. <laughs> I, I completely forgot about that. <laughs> I don't blame Wesley for getting pissed. Yeah, everybody no told him. Even his mom. Man. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Riker, Picard, his mom. Shut up, Wesley. Yeah, and they did they did that too much. Where yeah. oh Wesley was trying to tell me, but I wasn't listening. I mean, yeah, well, like twice in the two episodes they showed the, us. Just in the episodes we saw it happen twice, but it happens quite a few times yeah. throughout the series. Well, were they plugging into every young teenager's feeling that no one listens to them because they have so much to contribute to the situation? Usually not, but mm-hmm. you have teenagers, wouldn't you listen to them? In, in, in a moment within of crisis. Reason. Within reason. <laughs> no. All right, so we probably should talk about these issues. Yeah, we probably should. Uh, really, I don't have that much to say about it. Uh, I will say it's good to see Jordy being the lead in the story. Mm-hmm. But I, I got to say, um, a lot of his lines were boring. I mean, he was kind of, you know, it's... Uh, I mean, I'm glad he wasn't like, you know spouting out Arnold Schwarzenegger tough guy Mm one-liners but it's like most of what he was saying was very short and pretty boring you know when he was on his adventure right yeah and very level-headed they brought up him I mean he's thinking to himself and he has to think to himself about how unlucky he used to be with women and I'm like really is that what you think to yourself when you're going on an adventure <laughs> I mean, I know that that's an unfortunate plot point that they stick you in on this series, but right. why would you think that to yourself? <clears throat> you know, you know what I'm talking about. The, you yeah. know what part yeah. I'm talking about when he first beams over. Yep. Yeah, odd thought. Right. <laughs> to stick in there. So, anyways, I thought that was weird, but yeah, I, I did like that it was a Geordie centric sh- episode. Right. You don't get all that many of those. And uh, this one was better than the last one. But it was still, I think they uh, could have been shorter. Yeah. Yep. Agreed. Okay. Well, that's all I have to say about that one. Oh, that's it? That's it. I'm out. Yeah. I only had uh, three things to say, and I got them out. <laughs> I, well, I didn't like the artwork as well as I normally like the next-gen books. Yeah. Well, so what's the deal with the uh, with the breakdowns and the finishes thing? I mean, did Brandon Peterson, you know, did his mother die or something, and then Marcos had a Pablo had to finish it up, or is that a common thing? I don't know. It happens sometimes. <clears throat> or somebody will get the layouts, and then somebody else will do the finishes, and then somebody else then inks it after that. Right. Which Pablo is usually the inker on on these, so I guess this one well, he, he did more of the artwork itself. Yeah, and in the earlier issues, he was um, he was he was the artist. He was the main artist, right? Right, and then he became inker guy, and uh, so I mean, it's it's good that he doesn't have a big ooh, you know, I got to be the artist guy, right? So, you know, he has multiple jobs and he's cool with it apparently, but uh, kind of interesting. But you can definitely tell when it's him drawing. He has a very unique style that's not my favorite. Right. Well, so like when like the scenes with. Guinan and the, some of the scenes with with Crusher, I, it looks more like his artwork than it does anybody else's. Hmm. And I'm just not that big a fan of of his stuff. Right. 
But well, I, I like it better that they're not, you know, I mean they're not all Superman, right? <laughs> you know, with incredible bulging muscles and incredibly tight <laughs> cheeks, butt cheeks. <laughs> you spend a lot of time looking at their butt cheeks. Not real. How could you not? It's like, jeez. <laughs> all right. Well, I mean, that's what the everybody had. Just you know, incredible. Uh, uh, they they had pecs, breasts. Muscles everywhere and incredible butt cheeks. <laughs> yes, you're right. In those first, uh, In those first next ones. gen issues, very, very unrealistic, way idealized. Yes. Anyways, all right. It's getting late. We're, we've been talking for a while, so I guess we should probably wrap it up because I don't have anything else either. Yeah. Um, cool. Expanded universe stuff we won't cover because this was the annuals, so we don't. I don't even have the month that these came out on, so. Um, I'm sure we covered them in, in other months of 1992. So we'll be back next week. We'll do issues 40, 41, and 42 of the original series. Cool. Continuing our, our little take on the 90s. Exactly. Um, this, will, good. this will be actually the last full year worth of recording or uh, issues before we start doing Deep Space Nine as well. Ooh. Well, good. Uh, I'm looking forward to uh, Deep Space Nine. It's been a while. Yeah, and I'm looking forward to reading it in conjunction with, you know, the other ones, kind of like in chronological order. It's going to be, I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to doing all that. Yeah. All right, and then, uh, so that's that's about it. So I guess we'll talk to everybody next week. On the review of Star Trek comic books. Later. See you next time, everybody. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes or friend us on Facebook at first name stcomic.com. Second name, book review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review.